This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Or like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. And welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse. Your weekly foray into the world of interesting things that people are doing, the bits of the universe where the light's getting through those little cracks. Touching the buttons tonight, we've got Kent. Good evening. Good to see you. Good to see you too again. Um, yeah. Jed's off travelling. He's in Italy. Gallivanting around. Gallivanting on his bike. Yeah, he's and leading a very curated life social media-wise at the moment. We're just seeing Italian lakes and chateaus and food. Oh, on, on his Insta. On his Insta. Um, and we've got no Adam and no Bushy this evening, but we do have a another co- co-host, Ariane. Welcome. How are you? Very well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to have you back. Um, Ariane, can you please introduce our guest for this evening? Yes, lucky us. Our guest for this evening is Mr Dylan McConnell, an energy analyst from the Australian-German Climate and Energy College. So Dylan is a PhD researcher there and has a very specialist expertise in the national electricity market. Welcome, Dylan. Yeah, thanks, Erin. It's great to be here. Thanks for coming down. So one of Dylan's many claims to fame is he has some very highly read fact-checking articles in the conversation, which some of our listeners might be might be aware of. Uh, one of my one of my favourites and one of his second most read articles with seventy thousand readers is a fact check on something Alan Jones said about the cost of wind power. So got in there and fact checked it and set the record straight. Yeah, that was uh, it was quite an experience actually. It, it even involved a couple of personal uh, emails with Alan Jones himself. Uh, oh, that's nice. Was it? Were they friendly? Yes, they were very, um, very respectful. Very surprisingly, and um, I almost felt like I had made a difference. <laughs> well done. That that must have been really satisfying. So, what happened with this fact check? Did they? Did he then publish the correct information and renege on what had been said wrongly? Uh, unfortunately, not. He. I, I think he was. I, perhaps a little more um, uh, circumspect about what he may have said about wind power prices after that, but um, and yeah, I, I don't think there was a, a, an official sort of public apology or uh, you know retraction or anything like that. But an alt fact check. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is clearly still power in the truth. Thank goodness in this post fact world that we all live in. So I'm really excited to have Dylan here so we can pick his brain and ask him to give the I love that kind of little term TLDR, too long didn't read. You know, we've all got busy lives and there's kind of this insane maelstrom of political unrest about national electricity prices, the Paris Agreement, bringing down emissions, bringing down electricity prices and a whole lot 
of uh, perhaps political posturing, Dylan is here to let us all know what's true, what's not true, and how do we fix this mess. I was hoping you could give us all a bit of a walk through the most recent drama that we've all seen that led to the uh, uh, unseating of our latest PM. Um, what's happened with this national electricity guarantee, the NEG, and and what's next? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess the the what's happened is think best described as perhaps the death of the fifth, I think, attempt to have some kind of coherent uh, energy policy. If we go back through, um, go back through the, the sort of graveyard of attempted energy policies, uh, we had the, the carbon pollution reduction scheme that was um, uh, effectively killed actually in the, in the Rudd area. Then we had the carbon pricing mechanism under the, the sort of uh, the Gillard government that was ultimately repealed by Tony Abbott. Uh, there was sort of a bit of a, a push for something called an emissions intensity scheme there for a while. Um, and then there was the Finkel review, which recommended the, the so-called clean energy target. And then after that was sort of taken off the table by our um, uh, political masters, then they came up with the national energy guarantee, um, which also, I guess, met the same political fate and was uh, yeah, ultimately killed in a fairly spectacular fashion uh, and, and you know, played a f- at least uh, some part in the unseating of a, a sitting Prime Minister. Wow. And, and, and all the talk about the national interest electricity guarantee was that it was meant to solve this uh, energy trilemma. Uh, can you remind us all what that is? I think actually the uh, the energy trilemma has perhaps been taken off the table as well for, for some to some extent. That was certainly something that the uh, that Alan Finkel, the chief scientist, talked a lot about when he did his review of of uh, the electricity market, uh, sort of over a year ago now. Um, he he talked about you know the the, the three the, the trilemma of prices of. Um, reliability and emissions reductions uh, and and very much the national energy guarantee was focused more on prices and and reliability uh, there was i mean a sort of a, a, a fig leaf a, a, an attempt to include emissions in that but that was not uh, that was very much not the focus of of the policy it's certainly in terms of how it was presented or publicized it was all about lowering prices and maintaining reliability and in, in, to some extent, if we look at what's what, what's happened post or as part of the the death of the NEG, um, it's it's actually mainly just about lowering prices now. So even reliability is less talked about than uh, than the others. That there, yeah, that now reminds me about. Um, so for those who are really interested in uh, energy policy in Australia and you want to get more information, one really great thing to do is to follow the experts on Twitter. Uh, and and um, I followed Dylan on Twitter and he's really good at kind of like just throwing out a graph, just a graph here, a graph there, and it's a bit of a truth bomb. And the latest pinned graph on your Twitter feed is it illustrates exactly what you've just described so that the neg within the energy trilemma um, doesn't lower emissions or if it does... It's it's extremely minor, um, which which I think probably got a fair bit of attention when you popped that graph out. Mm, yeah, this is a, a sort of an interesting, particularly in the current political context. Um, so the the emissions reductions 
uh, projected by the the Energy Security Board, the sort of uh, supposedly independent body that uh, was set up to to um, to solve the trilemma. Um, that was actually a result of the Finkel review, but it it did commission some uh, modelling and. They they found the emissions reductions under this um, under this policy would have actually been less than what, what um, the Australian energy market operator had predicted in a business as usual scenario. Um, so that that was a that was a fairly uh, you know unusual uh, result, let's say. And and yeah, if you compare that those so you sort of have business as usual. The neg emissions re- results being actually worse than business as usual, and then you have what we actually need to do in terms of uh, meeting our Paris Agreement commitments, uh, and and that they, they, they are miles apart. Which brings us to the point that <coughs> the Paris Agreement asks us to uh, have high ambition, and the neg which we were offered and then died was pretty much just business as usual, well, and perhaps now worse than business as usual. Worse than business as usual. Ah, oh, there's got to be a climate litigation point in that somewhere for. <laughs> for me and my day job, but we'll see what we can find. Um, And now we've got nothing. So I think this brings us to our next, oh, there's a few, there's a few points in here, but here's one about, uh, I think it was Malcolm Turnbull's son, Alex Turnbull. Uh, Once his his dad lost his job and was in New York, uh, put put out an article and, and, uh, sorry, a brief journalist and said in his view... Part of why his dad lost his job was the influence of the coal lobby on the Liberal Party and on mm. Liberal MPs. And we're seeing a lot about that in the paper at the moment, the influence of lobby groups who are often immediate ex-politicians and they're lobbying for um, the big money. So who is anybody lobbying for what we want to see from... The- Paris Agreement? Is anybody lobbying for clean energy? Is anybody lobbying for sensibility over money? Well, uh, if they are, they're not doing a very good job. Ouch. <laughs> um, Ouch. I, I, you know, it, uh, it's a very timely question given the um, the Grattan Institute report, which came out, I think, this morning, um, which talked about this sort of revolving door that exists between our decision makers, politicians and um and lobby groups, um, and you know certainly this is this is an issue in the energy sector as as it is in other parts of the economy as well. And and I think you know you can look at our our previous uh, energy ministers and where the, where they have ended up in their their post political lives uh, is is you know it's a bit of an indictment on on this process. I guess um, you, you see whether it's Ian McFarlane or it's even Gary Gray or. Um, uh, even to some extent, Greg Combay, you know, he 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 left and did some work for Santos, a, a gas uh, company. So th- there is this very close knit relationship between uh, decision makers and and industry and in the energy sector as as there are in other, uh, and and that is that is a problem. Um, it's not a problem that's, I guess, limited to the energy sector, but it certainly um, it certainly plays a, a role in this uh, highly politicised um, discussion. And is it possible for the different political parties with their different values and alignments to ever come to an agreement on energy policy? Actually, that, that is something that is, I think, significant about the death of the NEG as opposed to the other policies, um, is that it, it is actually the death of uh, bipartisanship on this issue. I think now many people have sort of now come to the realization that bipartisanship is is not actually possible with the current um, in the current political climate and I don't, actually don't think that's a bad thing um, uh, but oh, it, what do you what do you mean by that that it's not a bad thing the death of bipartisanship 
because it just sh- it just um, lifts the veil, rips away the fig leaf that we're actually doing anything. Or I guess it's it's not a bad thing in the sense that if you if you have bipartisanship but have a terrible policy, then what is the point? Um, if you compromise <laughs> everything to get bipartisanship for its own sake, then there is. I mean. Uh, it's a bit of a tangent, but you could say we have bipartisanship on immigration policy. Is that a good thing? Yeah, no. And, yeah. and I, I don't actually think, like, you know, there's this this idea of... Uh, we've, we actually saw this with Malcolm Turnbull um, constantly appeasing the right wing of his party um, and whatever he, whatever he uh, you know, um, I guess took off the table or... Um, uh, that didn't appease them. And, Even and when he took, I think, um, the, the the emissions reductions portion the, of the neg off the table and offered yeah. to his party this this shell of a national electricity. Absolutely. So you can forget about bipartisanship. You can't even get your single party together. <laughs> right. yeah. It reminds me of a discussion that um, Amy Mullins was having this morning with Johan, Johan Harry on drug policy. Um, and they've, they've made leaps and bounds forward in drug policy in Australia, surprisingly, and also across Europe. Um, and he talked about the power of getting people to agree on some essential parts of the policy. So everybody can agree that kids wouldn't take drugs. Everybody can agree that we need to stop people being addicted. Everyone can agree on three things, say. With energy policy, it doesn't... It seems to be so divisive. I don't think you can even get them to agree that we should lower emissions, so... Or even get them to agree that there should be an, a, a policy in the first place. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And now we've seen kind of the rhetoric seems to be going back to uh, the the Peter, Peter Credlin playbook, Tony Abbott's chief of staff, mm. who pretty much came out now that she's become a journalist and said with respect to the doomed carbon tax, we made it a fight about the hip pocket and not about the environment. That was the brutal retail politics and Abbott did it. He cut through. Now, after seeing that, I've seen um, Deputy PM Josh Frydenberg and other commentators say the Morrison government will be put reducing people's power bills first over emissions reductions. It, to me, that seems like the exact same retail politics playbook. Would you agree? Or? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, it's sort of a, it's a bit of a, a, a side comment, but it's kind of interesting that now the cheapest way to actually provide energy or the, the, the easiest way to bring down energy prices is actually to increase the penetration of renewable energy. Um, so from a from a pure economic perspective or pure, you know, objective perspective, the best thing that could actually happen is more renewable energy. And in spite of having climate policy or an objective to reduce uh, emissions, we may actually do that through, through um, you know, this attempt to lower prices. Now, I don't know, that's not, that's sort of not a good thing in my mind. It's sort of a lucky circumstance that we're in that 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 has come you know we we might reduce emissions by chance in a sense um, without having a strong policy driver to do that um, but how that will play out with I guess the constituency of the the conservative side of politics will be interesting because the, the they've got they've basically now got a conflict between lower prices and uh, more renewable energy um, and and how established is that fact like kind of when all the energy analysts get in a room, do they agree? <laughs> uh, I think you would 
I don't think you could find a single energy analogist. Actually, let me go broader than that. I don't think you could find almost anyone in this sector that thinks that renewable energy is not the cheapest form of, of uh, new energy. That and the way and that it would lower power prices? I guess, that, yeah, that, that becomes a little bit more complex. That's a question about there's a lot more, I guess, nuance and subtlety to that uh, around competition and um, market power and a few other things, but yeah. When, when we're talking pricing and, um, and you know, the household budget, that, that, that sits neatly but com- with complexity alongside profit-making, right? So it's one thing for it to be possible to produce energy cheaper, but the market incentive for um, one energy supplier to move into selling um, uh, at a cheaper price if the profit margin is not there. So um, is that reconcilable? That, 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 that's a bit of a challenge and, and it's actually, yeah, that's um, we, we, just looking at what's happened in other countries. Um, in in um, Europe, they've effectively split up various companies. Um, uh, there's been oh, two or three of the big six they have over there have, have basically split their companies from the fossil fuel Sort of um, entities to the the, the green or um, yeah green and retail sort of entities, so that, that that conflict of interest doesn't exist in those particular cases. In Australia, where we have sort of the big three, um, and they are, we have a sort of strange situation in that the, the biggest renewable company is also the biggest emitter in the country. So that that does include, who are they again? Uh, that's AGL. So AGL, uh, you know, it, it it is the largest emitter. In, in the country, but it also is the largest renewable energy provider. Now, that is, that is an inherent conflict of interest for them for in terms of, uh, and not just them, a lot of companies sure. that want to increase their, or that might want to, if they were not vertically, integ- uh, sorry, um, ho- horizontally integrated, they may, they may, you know, like to expand their renewable energy portfolio, except that will come at the cost of uh, other, that there are other businesses. I'm Joel Salatin, known as the Lunatic Farmer, encouraging you to tune in every time you can to the muckraking, compost-loving, cud-chewing, soil-building, water-cleaning vanguard of Urban Hillbilly Radio, greening the apocalypse on Radio 102.7, Free Triple R. Now we've got Dylan McConnell, an energy expert in the studio here, letting us know what the truth is and cutting through to what's actually happening with our national energy policy. I think you had a question, Kate. (laughs) Yes, I have a question. Um, I have a two-pronged question. The first part of it is, what's the point? Why do we need a national energy policy? What does it do? And the second part is, what does the federal government do? What does the state government do? And what does the local government do if it can do anything? And whose fault is it? Uh, whose fault <laughs> is it? Oh, that's a, mm. Okay, well, I guess the, the, the point, the overarching point of the National Energy Guarantee, uh, one perspective was actually to have bipartisan, a bipartisan policy on energy um, policy. That was the point of it. In you know, having some policy that was not politically contested, that could be you know having effectively having the dials for a policy that w- could work. Um, so you know, in in the the version that was proposed, it w- wouldn't have done much. But a Labor government could have come in and basically 
turned up the dials and had some kind of uh, effect on our emissions. So that there's the sort of political answer that the the point of it was to have something. Um, I guess more directly, the, the point was actually to to have yeah to combine. Um, both, I guess, reliability and emissions outcomes in a single policy framework that allowed allowed um, our energy sector to be sort of, um, I guess, incentivised to decarbonise in a in a more managed or a sort of more coordinated way than than might happen without uh, a policy. So um, the policy tells the energy sector what to do, and it become does it get written into law? In in a sense, I, I mean, the other the other thing that it was supposed to to be, um, and this. I think was a failed strategy um, was essentially an emissions training scheme that didn't look like an emissions training scheme like that. Uh, it, it was it was a it was a it was kind of in disguise so that exactly. people didn't know. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, and so that you know, the likes of you know Craig Kelly and uh, the sort of back the, the the Monash Forum as they're referred to, um, you know, could agree to something that was not called a carbon tax, even though it effectively had a similar. And is that what happened? Did they figure out that that's what it was and that's why they got rid of Malcolm Turnbull or was it just kind of a... Um, I, so I think it's... I mean, I, 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 part of the reason I think it was a flawed strategy is because, you know, they're not stupid. Um, and they probably did figure that out pretty early on. Um, but I, I don't think... I think... You know, I'm just speculating here, but anything they probably would have thrown there their hands up in the air about. Um, I don't think the fact that it was an emissions training scheme or it wasn't an emissions training scheme was was an issue. It did, it did mean, though, that because it was obscured uh, and made to look not like an emissions training scheme, that it was a very complex, opaque, sort of uh, inefficient way of doing what, what an emissions training scheme should do. So... Is it like are we giving too much credit to uh, our politicians to think that they actually were looking at the policy with an objective that was um, in any way environment related or natural resources related? Um, in other words, what I'm saying is, am I just being way too cynical to think no? The objective of the policy was to do as little as possible without being seen to be doing nothing, <laughs> but enough to uh, keep a couple of votes, a couple of particular electorates mm-hmm. um, engaged. I, th- I think that's possible. That's probably a, f- a fair appraisal of the coalition's approach. But um, I guess, yeah, their the sort of broader idea was that there would be something in place so they wouldn't have to, you know, the Labor Party or whoever wouldn't have to redesign from the ground up some new policy uh, and go through the same sort of process again. So, uh, you know, there's some, I guess... Um, political advantages of having a policy owned by the conservative side of politics. Uh, we've, we've actually seen this in other countries around the world. A good example is, is Canada, where a conservative uh, government introduced a form of carbon pricing that was then uh, sort of scaled up by other, other uh, by a more progressive uh, party. But because it was conservative politics or conservative policy, um, it was a more sticky um, uh, 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 policy. So. Okay, so if we're gonna if we're gonna really start talking about Australia doing its fair share on emissions reduction to keep to Paris, you know we all know 1.5 degrees, um, the latest science. That's what we've got to keep it to to save the Great Barrier Reef and lots and lots of lives. My understanding of of the latest kind of energy um, information is that on a business as usual approach, we're probably going to have an ambitious emissions reduction that looks a little more like Labor's current policy 
I think it was the Australian energy market operator who put out that report. So kind of on a do nothing, don't even have the neg, we get to the emissions reduction in the energy sector that Labor is proposing. Is that right? That That's roughly right. I, I would be a bit hesitant to say that that's... I mean, that's not... Um have it, getting a 40% reduction or 45% reduction in the energy sector is not actually what our Paris Agreement commitment is. It's, um, or, you know, or Labor's version of that was um, because the energy sector is actually only, well, the electricity sector is only actually 30, 35% of our uh, national emissions. So there's all of the other parts of the economy that need to be, uh, to reduce its emissions as well. Now, this idea that has, I guess, been introduced through the neg, this idea that every part of the economy will do its fair share, uh, or you know, it'll be proportioned across the different um, sectors, is is very unusual, and it's it's certainly something that well, it's not anything that um, economists or or you know people that work in this space think is a sensible thing to do because decarbonising electricity is incredibly easy compared to decarbonising the agriculture sector, decarbonising <laughs> the transport sector, which, by the way, our emissions are going up a lot in the transport sector. Um, and so doing the sort of the bare minimum in the electricity sector is actually not a very smart uh, policy. And, and I, I guess it's, it's also worth pointing out that some of these other parts of the economy, whether it is transport or industrial processes, um, you know, they can actually basically leverage the decarbonisation potential in the electricity sector by electrifying transport or electrifying industrial heat or, you know, all of the, there's all these, I guess, additional forms of mitigation that occur, can occur if your electricity sector is decarbonised. So, yeah, so the the business as usual of 40, 40-odd percent, 45% emissions reduction without a strong policy is good, but it's actually not good enough. Right. So that would kind of mean that what's going to happen on a, to our electricity sector, which is really what coal, currently kind of a mix of coal-fired power, gas, renewables, a bit of hydro. So the decarbonisation moving to the cleaner energy, um, if, if we kind of take a hands-off approach, is going to meet Labor's existing target within their policy and it's going to be way, way, way not enough unless something unless, drastic happens in the other sectors, exactly. which unless is we, So, yeah, I, I guess one of the good things about the, the electricity sector is that emissions are actually going down sort of in spite of having a, a, a policy to do that and because of the cost reductions that have occurred in the, you know, that's now the, the, the sensible thing to invest in is... is low emissions technology, etc. This is not the case for transport. Transport emissions are going up. They're the highest they've ever been. We broke another record of electricity sector emissions last quarter. Um, and what was that transport sector? We broke yeah. another record of transport sector. And, and there was so, that recent report from um, a, a, a reliable kind of, I think it's the NDEVR environmental, which said Australia's emissions are the highest on record. Yeah, like I don't, know, I wouldn't, I don't know that particular report, but I suspect that it's um, that's true if you ex- exclude land use change. Um, yeah, I think they left that out of that particular report. Yeah, because because there's some sort of interesting accounting around that, particularly in recent years. But um, I'm just thinking about the energy it would take to electrify our transport sector. The, so to electrify all the vehicles, to make new vehicles, I'm sure we could electrify or trans- transition some oil burning to electric, but the actual embedded energy that that would take would push emissions up 
dramatically before they started to go down again. Yeah, that's. I, mean, I guess that's. Pro, that's yeah, that's true. I, I wouldn't have the faintest idea what the the numbers would be on that. Um, I guess the. I guess I'm just trying to say it's not a quick win um, in terms of uh, embedded energy and energy return on energy invested just to flick a switch and say it's okay we can electrify our transport system we can electrify, mm-hmm. we can transition agriculture over to an electric uh, an electrics, uh, renewables based system because getting to that point mm-hmm. would take an awful lot of energy use. And probably yeah. a lot of money I guess. Too. Yes a lot of money and I guess I guess the, the sort of in the short term, that is true. I think in the, the medium to long term, then the, you start having a different sort of dynamic because you start having uh, things like green steel or, uh, you know, low emissions forms of manufacturing or um, uh, production of chemical processes, chemical feedstocks. There's a fair bit of work going into different ways of making um, the different chemical feedstocks we use in uh, in a low carbon way, using biomass or you know various other uh, processes. So, yeah, there there is a I guess a scheduling problem there um, in terms of, but uh, you know eventually if if we were in a situation where our system was one hundred percent renewable energy, then the energy the embodied energy within a a a new car is actually very small. Um, and I, I don't know the numbers, but uh, just for for transport specifically, but um, you know this is an issue that that's also uh, in the renewable energy space as well. So the embodied energy in a solar panel versus the embodied energy in a a, um, a wind turbine. And uh, the last time I saw this, the payback period for a wind t- turbine was about six months, and I think it's under a year for a solar panel now. And keeping in mind that these things are now lasting for about 25 years at least, um, it's, it's not terrible, um, and it's only going to become better as we further decarbonise the rest of our economy. Just clarify that on that that concept of payback. That's payback um, by the supplier of the energy, or um, people receiving their energy via that. that it's, it's payback in the sense of um, the amount of energy that's gone into making that wind turbine or that uh, solar panel. Um, you know, all of it, its components: the steel, the concrete, etc. Um, how so it takes six months of the operation of the wind turbine to effectively produce the same amount of energy that's gone into making it and so yeah yeah okay so we're talking we've been talking about the uh, emissions reduction part of the energy trilemma Mm -hmm. i want to move on to reliability Mm -hmm. and i want to i want some i want some fact checking around this idea Mm -hmm. of Oh, what's that word? It's like a base load. There was a recent report come, that came out. I can't even remember which one it was, the ACCC or someone talking about um, even suggesting government funding of... Uh, I don't think they even use the word base load. Can no, you... they certainly didn't. In that, that was a, an interpretation by, once again, the Monash Forum of, of the ACCC. It was the ACCC's report on um, electricity, on the electricity sector. Um they they one of their recommendations which was seized upon by a lot of a lot of people um was to for the federal government to uh underwrite um new generation and not any new generation or they use a specific term new firm generation now firm. that's firm not baseload not baseload now that was i think um matt canavan you know the day the report came out was saying look you know this is vindication of us of our position, the ACCC is saying we need to underwrite a new coal-fired power station. Of course, they said nothing of the sort. In fact, I think at, by the end of the day, 
the uh, chairman of the ACCC, uh, Rod Sims, was out uh, out in the media saying that's not what we said at all. Um, and so, what what that recommendation really was, I mean, it, it, it did recommend firm power, but what firm power is is actually not baseload or not in the terms of you know the. The, the 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 uh, the way that people think about this, it was not saying we need to build build a new coal fired power station at all. What is baseload energy? <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't ask that. Um, uh, baseload it's a very it's a very politically contested term. Let's say um, it's it, from a technical perspective, or from a, the the perspective that um, uh, me and my colleagues uh, talk about it, it is very different to how it gets used in the in the discourse, in the media, in, in politics. Um, so from an energy sp- uh, systems perspective, what baseload is, it's, it is literally the, the base load, the minimum load that the system has. So we have a, approximately, uh, what, 20, 25 gigawatt load on the system. Uh, on average in Australia, on the Eastern Seaboard of Australia. Uh, but that fluctuates quite a lot. Um, and overnight, it'll go, it can go down to, you know, 17 or 18 gigawatts. And on a hot summer's day in the middle of, uh, you know, middle of summer, it might go up to 35 gigawatts or something like that. So th- it fluctuates quite a lot. But the base load is essentially the minimum load that it never goes below. So... It, it's, it's essentially a demand side concept. So we have this base load that needs to be satisfied. And historically, the most economic way to meet the base load was to build coal-fired power stations, uh, power stations that run, you know, at high utilisation, you know, essentially 90% of the time they are online and producing um, and because they're actually, you know, they've got low cost fuel. Coal is low cost if you don't account for the health and um, <laughs> health and emissions cost. It is a, if you don't do that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's an important. And we don't. Hey, we don't. We don't. Yeah. So that that's why we, you know we have a lot of coal. It's because it's cheap uh, and able to provide that constant output um, to meet that base load. Now, then we have other technologies like gas and like hydro that can ramp up and down very quickly to meet the peaks and you know it, so that that's the sort of historical way of looking at what the how the system worked now so now that's i guess changing because what you're trying to what 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 you have now is the lowest cost way of meeting of providing energy is renewable energy now you still need to have those other technologies whether it's in, in a low carbon world, you're talking about things like pumped hydro. You're talking about battery storage. You're talking about concentrating solar thermal. There's, you know, or even things like biomass. Or, um, um, uh, yeah, basically you gasify biomass and run gas turbines, etc. They still provide that flexible capacity to actually meet demand. But your, you know, your the cheap form of energy that's providing the bulk of your your power is actually uh, your low cost renewables like wind and solar. And do you need a battery for that? For the when m- the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining? Yeah, look, it's, it's, not, it's not just a matter of a battery or at least a battery in the, the conventional sense of what people think about. Um, you know, people think of, you know, batteries in their phones or the, even the Tesla battery over in South Australia or, uh, you know, lead-acid batteries. Um, batteries can also come in the form of pumped hydro uh, where you're basically uh, pumping water up a hill um, during the day or when there's lots of sun or when it's really 
windy and then when it's when there's less wind or less or it's at night then you let the water run back down the hill and you regenerate and you are listening to greening the apocalypse on three triple r We're in the studio here with Dylan McConnell, our energy expert for tonight, who's talking to us about where we're sitting in terms of the energy trilemma, bringing down emissions, bringing down energy prices. So we've been talking a lot about those with the power at a federal level have kind of uh, dropped the ball, so to speak. Uh, You know, what's next? Does the federal government even really have jurisdiction over the electricity market? What can the states do? What can the local governments do? Yeah, it's a good question. What's, what's next uh, in terms of the federal level is, is anyone's guess, and I suspect we're not going to have a very coherent or uh, yeah, comprehensive or decent policy in the energy space anytime soon. Thankfully, we do have uh, fairly, well, very good um, uh, state energy pol- um, governments that are uh, sort of, I guess, picking up the slack somewhat and, and, and providing a bit more um, certainty to some of these industries that are, are facing a fairly uncertain um, policy landscape. Uh, you know, specifically, I'd be thinking about uh, the ACT, the Victorian government uh, and Queensland, which all have uh, renewable energy targets in place. And, and part of these, these targets, you know, they, they, they've been, uh, they're being fulfilled through this uh, policy mechanism called a reverse auction. Um, and part of this actually provides, you know, provides security or um, some level of certainty to the, the project developers in the face of this uh, fairly hor- horrible situation at the federal level. Um, and and they're, they're actually, you know, we've, we actually saw in Victoria a, um, uh, the, the results of the auction announced about two or three weeks ago now. And, we, you know, almost it was 930 megawatts. It's a, it's a fairly large chunk. It's almost... Um, what is that? It's about ten percent of the, the sort of installed capacity in Victoria of new generation sort of coming through in this in this process, and and so there there are things happening at the state level uh, that are yeah providing a bit of a backstop to to sort of the let's say incompetence at the at the federal level. So we're seeing lots of announcements at the moment from our Victorian state government about what they intend to do if they get back into power. Mm-hmm. Uh, so things like substituting uh, battery storage for households. Um, there's other things I've seen being announced. There's, there's a couple of... So, the, yeah, the, I mean, they'll continue. This is, uh, I guess, a point of difference between the, the state governments is that... Uh, or the, the state government and the opposition is that um, the Labor Party will continue its Victorian Renewable Energy Target Program, but the coalition uh, hasn't committed to doing that. So they won't tear up contracts for projects that are already uh, sort of announced and committed, but they are not going to fulfil, as it currently stands, they are not going to fulfil the rest of the Victorian Renewable Energy Target. So, uh, you know, if if a Labor government was to be re-elected, then that would see the VRET uh, sort of come to fruition. Another, I think another policy... Um, uh, object or announcement at least is around uh, rooftop solar. So they announced this is probably four or five weeks ago now. <coughs> they announced a, um, uh, I think it's a one point two billion dollar program around I- increasing the amount of rooftop solar in in Victoria, um, partly through uh, direct grant and partly through um, uh, basically low interest loans or, or no interest loans from the government. 
So, so the states can do a lot and some states really are doing a lot. Well, it's, it's probably worth pointing out that uh, constitutionally um, energy policy actually s- sits with the states. It's one of the so-called residual powers. So the federal government actually doesn't have any jurisdiction in this space. Um, so it's actually going to be... So why are they spending so much time talking about it? Booting out prime ministers, that's making a, a big fuss. That's a good question, and perhaps they are regretting that right now. Um, but I, I, the, where the challenge is, uh, and this this comes to, I guess, the other part of the question is around um, emissions. That's a treaty that is signed by the federal government, and the states actually have no hmm. uh, jurisdiction around um, uh, international treaties. So th- there is there is a crossover there, um, and that's a challenge. And it, it's actually quite similar to. To the situation in the states at the moment, we are, you know we obviously have uh, a fairly recalcitrant president that's um, um, pulled out of the Paris Agreement. But then at the same time, we have uh, last time I checked, it was uh, I think eighteen states that represented over forty percent of the population of America, and I think over forty percent of the GDP of America have sort of signed up to the Paris Agreement. They are committing mm-hmm. to decarbonisation. So. They don't actually have the legal authority to do that, but they are still uh, committed to that particular uh, outcome. So we could have the same thing happening in Australia or perhaps some kind of agreement Mm -hmm. between the state, say at COAG, to reduce emissions in the national electricity market. I think there's one important difference is the capacity for states in the United States to raise taxes that doesn't apply here and so the federal government here has got some purse strings we see it with health and funding of hospitals where part of the gst is supposed to be distributed around at hospitals and at, at a federal money level but hospitals are a state that's yeah that's utility. true i guess one of the the things about um particularly because of the the cost reductions with um with renewables it wouldn't actually necessarily cost much. Um, right. In fact, in the in the short term, the VRET is quite possibly because of the particularities of the the policy mechanism that they've got in place. It could actually generate the government money, like that. VRET uh, being the uh, the Victoria Renewable Energy Target. So the the way that these auctions are structured, because they you know they um, it's it's basically taking the risk out of them uh, of their participation in the the wholesale market. If the wholesale prices are remain as high as they have been for the last couple of years or, you know, even even uh, yeah, even yeah, if they go down to where they were sort of four or five years ago, the government would technically be making money out of that. So mm. the, the cost issue is not as, not as big All a right. challenge. Yeah. Uh, and I guess there are, there are other avenues. I mean, one of the, the, the sort of um, uh, perhaps more controversial uh, avenues would be through royalties, um, and you know they, the state government has increased royalties on um, uh, brown coal, sort of in the past couple of years. I can't remember exactly when that was. They increased them to be in line with other states. It wasn't a huge uh, increase. The, the, another one that's uh, potentially um, controversial is um, the p- air pollution sort of uh, lever. Ah, yeah, make the health make the yes. health impacts a, a relevant lever. Yeah, yeah. It's a well, there's one. light at the end of the tunnel, or there's light. Not we're not even going through a tunnel. Or well, nearly yeah, at the off, end. off a cliff, I think, in terms of a safe climate future. But it sounds like there's some there's some ways to save ourselves, which is good news. I want to thank our guest tonight, Dylan McConnell. Listeners, if you want some truth bombs on your Twitter feed, you can follow Dylan on Twitter at, at 
Dylan J. McConnell to find out the truth about energy politics. Thanks for being on the show, Dylan. Uh, no worries. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.